have you ever stopped to think about how little control we really have over life and death? You know, like we, we live in a day in which we can eat organic eggs and drink organic milk and eat organic cereal. And we think, we think, we think that with all the vitamins that we have access to and all the organic food and all the workout plans and Planet Fitness and Anytime Fitness and all these things that we can do, that now basically we can control how long we're going to live. That obviously all of us are going to live to 80, 90, 100 Whatever, but the truth is, the truth is, is that we actually have very little control over life and death. I was thinking about this. I have kind of a, a twisted mind, you know. You probably, I got some wires crossed somewhere, you know. And I was thinking about this the other day, going up the interstate. So I'm towing this camper, right, and driving toward Atlanta. And Atlanta, it makes you contemplate your mortality. Anyway, right? So I'm driving toward, Orlando, uh, toward Atlanta, and I'm towing this thing, and we're going like 70 miles an hour down the interstate. And there's this other car right beside me, and he's going like 70 miles an hour. And our mirrors are inches from each other. Inches, okay? And it just occurred to me, like, what happens if this guy gets stung by a bee? You know, like, like what if a hornet makes its way in, hits him right in the neck, he veers right, I'm done. And it was all because he got stung by a bee. Like, what if you're following down the interstate, and the person in front of you has never towed a trailer before, and he's towing this flatbed trailer, and he doesn't have the hitch seated just right on the receiver, and that hitch comes off, and you've got a flatbed trailer through your windshield? You ever think about stuff like that? It happens, man. Like, like okay, think about this. You don't know if the place that you're working, you don't know if the ceiling is filled with asbestos. You don't know if the swimming pool that you're swimming in is filled with E. coli. We just don't. Aren't you glad you came to church? Huh? Do you feel encouraged yet? But we really, we don't know that our, our lives are really outside of our control, aren't they? That, that we don't really actually have control over life and death. We don't really have control of the ability to be able to stay alive and to live a certain length of, of time at will. This is James's point in his book when he says, you think you're just going to go here and go there? Do you not understand your life is a vapor? Your life is a vapor. You don't have any control. In fact, I believe that God uses our lack of control to reveal himself to us. God uses our lack of control to reveal to us the nature of who he is. And that's exactly where we find uh, Israel in Exodus chapter 14. So God has been guiding them out of Egypt. They've plundered the Egyptians. They've got the wealth of Egypt with them. And they've seen these miraculous deliverances and the plagues and the firstborn and the Passover. We've seen all of that. And God leads them out. And then all of a sudden, he has them take a hard right turn that is tactically foolish. And he pins them. He pins them between the Red Sea and the mightiest military on earth. The Pharaoh sees this and he assumes that there's confusion. He assumes that they must not know what they're doing or they're afraid or they're, they're having a, a loss of heart or a change of mind. And he begins to pursue them. And so here the people of God are and they're being, they're being squeezed. And here God is doing this on purpose. And he's doing it so that he can reveal the nature of who he is even more clearly, more profoundly, carve it into the memories of his people. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now? to Exodus chapter 14. And really what we have is probably the climactic redemptive event in all of human history outside of the cross of Jesus Christ at the Red Sea. Alright, so when you get to Exodus chapter 14, would you stand with me if you're able to read God's word together. We'll begin in verse 10 together and read all the way to the end of the chapter. 
God's word says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall not see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and all the horsemen and of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. God often takes his people the wrong way on purpose. You ever feel that way? It often feels as though you may know what God's promises are. You may not know what God's will is. You may, not, you may know what God's design is. But it seems as though the circumstances in your life and the occurrences in, the, in your life and the relationships in your life seem to veer you in the opposite direction. It's exactly what it must have felt like for Israel. God intentionally put his people in a defenseless position. Think about that. God intentionally put his people in a position of vulnerability, in a position that appeared to be insurmountable, in a position that appeared to be totally hopeless, and they had no control over it. They had no solution to it. This is exactly what it feels like in the midst of COVID-19, is it not? 
This is exactly what it feels like as you watch your retirement funds deplete in the stock markets, volatility, right? Do you have control over that? Do you have control not just over that, but over people's responses to that? Do you have control over the economy? Do you have control over, you don't have control over any of those things, right? And so here you are sometimes, and it feels like you're just a sitting duck, like the enemies are pressing in on you on one side, and there's a hopeless escape into the sea on the other side. And the only options that are facing you is you can either go be beaten and re-enslaved or annihilated by the Egyptian army, or plunge yourself into a watery grave in the midst of the Red Sea. And yet it's ironic that it's in this position, this position of, of defenselessness, facing insurmountable odds, that God chooses to reveal himself to his people in a way that would have them singing his praises and singing worship to him for generations to come. And so I want, you to see, I want us to see three things that I see that God reveals about himself. And first thing I want you to see is that God loves his people. God loves his people. Of course we know that God loves the world, right? The famous verse from John 3, 16. And y'all, it is powerfully, wonderfully, beautifully, richly true that God loves the world. But there is another gear to his love. There is another layer to his love. There is a, a, a greater depth and, and personal nature to his love that only his children know. That only his sons and his daughters come to understand the redeeming power, wonder, depth, splendor, abiding nature of the love of God. And this is what he's pressing deeply into the hearts of the Israelites. And this is what he's pressing deeply into our hearts. See, when they, they leave in, uh, when they leave Egypt, having plundered Egypt, they head off into the wilderness and they've seen all these amazing things. Verse 8 says that they go out and they go out defiantly. That, that means that they go out boldly. They're going out and they're, they're kind of chanting victory songs, you know. They're like walking out, slinging and, and, and talking trash and talking, talking stuff and, and saying, yeah, we told you, we told you, right? And then they get to verse 10. Then they get to verse 10. And they look over their shoulders and Egypt is bearing down. They look over their shoulders and this, this well-trained fighting military machine is with all of their chariots and all of their splendor and all of their might and all of their organization is closing and pressing them further and further into the banks of the Red Sea. And as soon as they see, their hearts melt. One look, one look and they forgot the place. One look and they forgot God's deliverance. One look and they forgot how God had protected them and defended them and delivered them time and again. One look and they had forgotten all that God had said to them through Moses. One look and their hearts fainted. Man, I don't know about you, but that's me. That's me. I can look over the artifacts of my life as like it's a museum of the faithfulness of God. Like it's a museum of the faithfulness of God. I've seen God work in my health. I've seen God work in my relationships. I've seen what it's like to be your back up against the wall and feel like there's no hope and watched as God delivered me. I've watched as God has overcome my own incompetence to accomplish something, right? Like I've, I've seen it time and again. And yet one look, one look over my shoulder, one look at my enemies, one look. I get a text message from a well-meaning person and immediately everything's coming apart. Y'all, I was evaluating how long I could go without a salary when COVID-19 hits, right? Like, like everything's just going to collapse. Everything's going to die. One look. One look at my, my frail nature. 
So I can imagine, I can relate to Israel when they see all of this and they look to Moses and they, it's, it's actually kind of funny. They say, were there not enough graves in Egypt? You wanted us just to die here? You delivered us yesterday to kill us today? You, you let, the, you let the, the, the angel of death pass over us only so that we could die on the edge of the Red Sea in the midst of the wilderness? We'd have been better off to remain slaves. It's, kind of, it's funny because what do we, we don't know very much about Egypt necessarily, right? Like not a lot of Egyptologists in the house today, I would imagine. But I bet if you know anything about Egypt, you would think about mummies, right? You think about pyramids. That is, you think about their graves. They're famous for their graves. It's, it's, it's a land of graves. It's a land that celebrates their graves and digs up their graves and, and plunders their graves, right? And so they're looking back and saying, you, you think they couldn't handle one more mummy? Is that why you brought us here? They, they, they couldn't put one more in the house of the pyramid? Like, we couldn't do that one more time? They see it and they melt it. You see, we doubt God's love far more easily than we believe God's love. We doubt God's love far more easily than we believe God's love, even, even, even as his people. And this is how Israel would interpret the events of their forefathers generations later. When we're interpreting the Bible, it's always helpful if we want to really understand what's going on, is to see if there's a place that it's referenced later, generations later, see how they interpreted that passage. See, see what they were learning from it. And this is what they learned. We see that in the text that I read at the beginning of the service. Let me, uh, Psalm 106, let me read verse 7 to you. It says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. I want you to especially notice the word steadfast there. The Psalms, that's the, that's the hymn book of the Bible. It's the, pray, the, the book of praise in the Bible where God's people, right, right, where they say that prose just won't do. We've got to write this poetically. That our God is so great, that his, that his, his wonder is so mighty, that his love is so profound. We can't just use sentences. We've got to write it beautifully. We've got to write it in praise. We've got to write it in poetry, right? And one of the primary emphasis of the book of Psalms is the steadfast love of God. In fact, you can even go to places in which the, the saints are, are floundering and they're in anguish. And they'll even say things like, like my tears are my food. You ever felt that way? But they always land on one particular subject. My tears are like food. My, my, my joints are out of socket. My bones are wasting away. But I remember the steadfast love of the Lord. But I remember that his love is stable. I remember that his love is consistent. I remember that his love does not waver. I remember that his love is perfect, dependable, reliable. That his love is steadfast. See, how is it? How is it that Israel could forget? It goes to their understanding of the gods. And it goes to our understanding of the gods when we think that our Lord has forgotten us in his love. You see, what they understood is they understood the gods to be fickle. They understood that the gods might be with you today and not be with you tomorrow. They may be for you today and they may be against you tomorrow. So if you're worshiping the sun and today the sun brings in the crops, but tomorrow the sun blacks out and no crops come. Today the Nile produces and gives you fish and food and all the resources that you need. But next year, next year the Nile comes up short. This year you get the, the rains and the ground is fertile and the crops come in, but next year no rains come and we experience famine and pestilence. And so the gods were fickle. They could be with you today and against you tomorrow. They could be, they could be present today and absent tomorrow. 
And so they're looking, and they're, they're looking to their God, Yahweh, the one that had delivered them, the one that had made promises to them, the one that had covenanted with him. And they're treating him as though he is reliable as the Nile, as, as, as flaky as the sun, as though he is just some other God from some other place. You see, that's why, that's why we have trouble understanding the love of God. Can, can I just be honest with you? Contemplating the love of God doesn't come easily for me. I think it's a personality thing. I think it's a, it's a, it's a baggage thing. But I, I think there are particular people that, that bring so much baggage to the concept of the love of God that contemplating it is difficult. For me, when I, when I think about the love of God, I start thinking I'm trying to let myself off the hook of something, right? I, I, start, I start thinking that I'm trying to let myself skate, that I'm trying to, to lower my, my, my pursuit of holiness, that I'm trying to, to lessen, that, that I, would rather, I would rather have someone say, do this, go here, that, that, that we almost surround ourselves sometimes with, with preachers that will abuse us and blister us and bludgeon us. And it's because it's easier. It's easier. We've come, to con- we've come to contemplate the love of God and see the love of God from the perspective of the love of man, see. We see it from the perspective of the love of man, that we begin to assume that God loves us the same way that man- men love us and the same way that we love others. That is, that God's love is as low and unwavering and unstable and uncommitted as my love and as your love and as the way that we've been loved by others. That it's difficult for us to contemplate the love of God when the knife blade from our ex-wife or from our dad or from our children is still stuck between our shoulder blades. That is that the brightness of God's love is difficult to see with human eyes. And it's difficult to see with human eyes because our eyes have adjusted to the darkness that's around us. Have you ever been in a dark room for a long time? You're in a dark room for a long time. Maybe your, your room's in the basement. Like when I was growing up, my room was in the basement. It didn't have any windows. And so if you come on, come in, I, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And if you flip the lights on, the first thing that I would do is I would deflect, right? I would look away from the light. I would look away from it because it was too bright for me to behold. I, I couldn't see it. And I think that's how so many of us relate to the love of God. We love the idea of God's love. We love the concept of God's love. We love the reality of God's love. We would even acknowledge God's love. But constantly, when it comes to our thoughts, when it comes to us actually meditating on it, when it comes to us actually resting in it, when it comes to us actually rejoicing in it, we look away, we, we deflect because it's, it's too bright against the backdrop of the darkness that our eyes have adjusted to. And that's why we strive when God says rest. That's why we perform when God says abide. That's why we conceal when God says confess. It's because we know we need the approval of God. We know we need the approval of God. We know we need the acceptance of God. That is, we we know we need the love of God. And our whole framework for love is performance. Our whole framework for love is conditions. Our whole framework of love is that I must do and perform and, and work and labor. And if I do and perform and work and labor and, I, and I, I hide all my bad and I project all of my good, then I will be accepted. Then I will be approved. Then, then perhaps I will be held fast. So, so we are projecting onto God that his love is in, as imperfect as our ex. We are projecting onto God as though his love is in, as imperfect as the, the dad that, that bailed on us. As imperfect as the love that we have shown to others and we know that we haven't followed through. 
And so what we are constantly being called away from is we are being called away from the scorecard. We're being called away from, don't just tell me what to do, tell me who to be. And that is Moses' exhortation. In in verse 13, Moses gives these three commands, and they are so beautiful, powerful, and complicated for us as sinners. In verse 13, Moses looks, and I kind of would have expected a rebuke for Moses, but Moses gives an encouragement. Moses, Moses gives a charge. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, and see the fair the salvation of the Lord. In other words, what did Israel need to do in order to be saved? They needed to watch. They needed to watch. That it's the most counterintuitive command that we could find, right? Don't try to control. Don't try to fix this yourself. Don't try to overcome this. No, watch. Watch. So much much of the time, we're, we're thinking like that God is looking at us and he's saying, don't just stand there, do something. Right? And so we're always trying to do something, do something, do something. God's not saying that. God's saying, don't just do something. Stand there. Stand there and watch my character. Stand there and behold my glory. Stand there and watch as my steadfast love overcomes all of the insufficiencies, all of the flaws, all of the imperfections, all of the struggles. That is, don't strive, rest. Don't perform, abide. Don't fight, watch. Watch, our lack of control teaches us the stability of God's love. Our lack of control teaches us the stability of God's love. You can't control cancer. You can't control infertility. You can't control adult children. You can't control the economy. You can't control any of those things. And yet, it's the very lack of control that sets the stage in your life for God to say, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. That it is an opportunity for you to learn again that God's love is nothing like your love. It is not up and down, hot and cold. God's love is stable and steadfast and dependable. Just watch. Just watch. Now, I think we're supposed to see that this love is being worked out in a particular way. That it's, it's being brought to bear in a very, very particular way. And that is that God loves his people, so God defends his people. God loves his people, so God defends his people. My goodness, I hope, I hope this stiffens your spine. I hope this moves you forward. Why is it that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh would come after Israel again? Do you ever just look at this guy and think, man, you are a glutton for punishment, son. I mean, this guy has lost his economy, he's lost the vegetation, he's, he's entered into famine, he, he's experienced pestilence, he's the livestock, he's lost his own son. And he looks at this situation, you, you've got to commend his optimism, and he thinks, well, I'll take him out this time. This is my shot, right? Like, this is my time. I, I, know, I know that Alabama has beaten me flat every time, but man, North Dakota State's coming this time, right? And so he sees and he, and he goes after him yet again. Why? Because he has the same concept of the gods, right? That now, now that they look confused, now that they've changed their route, now that they've reversed course, now that they seem to show apprehension, now that they're pinned against the Red Sea, obviously their God has abandoned them. Now, obviously, obviously Israel has ran, ran out of luck, but brothers and sisters, Pharaoh is the one that is out of luck because Yahweh abides with his people. Yahweh abides with his people. His love is steadfast. And so Israel looks defenseless. The odds appear insurmountable. But God, but God is abiding with them. And that's the point of verse 19. 
Verse 19. Let's read that together. It says, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now, this is cool. All right. So this is the fulfillment of what he says in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And this is the realization that Egypt herself will come to realize. To come to realize. Look at the end of verse 25. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. All right. So the picture, the picture. It is a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The, the very angel of the Lord, I understand those terms to be synonymous, okay? To, to work in parallel form with one another. That, that, in other words, that when we're talking about the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, we're talking about the very manifest presence of God himself there in the midst of his people. And so God, God himself has led, led Israel out of Egypt across. And God himself has led them to make this turn and led them to the edge of the Red Sea. And so God, God is guiding his people, but then he changes position. God changes his strategic position. Do you see this? He's up in front and he's guiding. Egypt begins to close in on him, and God goes and he stands behind them. In other words, God stands behind Israel and he says, yeah, if they're going to get to you, they're going to go through me. If they're going to come after you, you need to know first and foremost, they're coming after me. That I will fight for you. I will defend you. I will stand in your place. You see, that, that is how Israel can fear not. That is how Israel can stand firm. It's, it's really an irony. If you read the scriptures from, from cover to cover, like Genesis to Revelation, you're going to come to these two what appear to be irreconcilable truths about yourself. Okay, the first is, is that you were like very, very, very super double dog weak. Okay, like you're a wuss, you're a pansy, you're, you're always going to flake out. You're always going to look over your shoulder and your heart is going to melt. You're always, always, always going to come up short. You're always going like to, you read the Bible, our heroes, the biggest, baddest dudes in the Bible, all of them stroke out at some point. All of them lay down. All of them have problems, right? So you're like super, super, super weak. And then over and over and over again, just as often, do you know what God is calling his people to do? Be courageous. Go forward. Do, do what he's calling for them to do. Is that all he's calling? So, so here's Moses, and he's on the edge of the Red Sea. He's got Egypt bowing, uh, coming down. He begins to pray, and God says, stop praying. What are you talking to me for? Go forward. Go forward. To the sea? It's like God is, it's, it's almost like a duh. Like, do you not know that you are holding the staff of the Lord? Do you not know that the manifest presence of God is with you? Raise up the staff and divide the sea. Go forward. That there's these two truths. I am weak and yet God is calling me forward. God is calling me to courage. God is calling me to do that which I always want to timidly shrink back from. And they are irreconcilable alone. Alone. But God puts himself between the threat and his people. God puts himself between the threat and his people. This is what good dads do, isn't it? This is what good fathers do. Good fathers put themselves, put themselves between their children and the robber. Good fathers put themselves between their child and oncoming traffic. 
Good fathers put themselves in harm's way to defend the family. In fact, in fact, in fact, you can say that the threat itself draws out the love of that father, doesn't it? When you see that threat and you see the father respond with strength and respond with, with instinct and overcome that threat, you see the, the love of that father being drawn out in a way that you don't see every single day, right? And here, here in, is Egypt uh, pressing in on Israel and the threat is real and the threat is violent and the father intercedes. He, he intervenes in the midst of it and he says, I will, put, I will defend and it draws out, it draws out the love of of the father you see and now now the weak children the ones who are wanting to cower back the ones whose hearts are melted are able to go forward and cross over the sea not because they are strong not because they have courage within themselves but because the threat the threat has to go through the manifest presence of God to get to them that's why that's what gives you courage to show kindness to the person who slanders you on Facebook that God is between you and them. See, the distance between you and your enemies is Jesus. The distance between you and your enemies is Jesus. He is standing in front of us. He is standing in front of us. Y'all, that's what happened on the cross. That's what happened on the cross. Your greatest enemy, sin, and your greatest enemy, uh, your greatest threat, death, found Jesus standing in front of you. So when your sin called for your punishment and your death, Jesus, the man of war, this is what the reference is going to be in, in Moses' song of this in, in the next chapter, in chapter 15, is, is standing firm on the cross, experiencing the full power of your enemy. And then through the resurrection, he strikes back, slaying your enemy, burying it as deep as hell. And y'all, if he has struck down our greatest enemy and he has overcome our greatest threat, what else do we have to fear? What else do we have to fear? Is there any wonder why they're always calling us to, 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 to be firm? Is there any wonder why God is always calling us to be courageous? Is there any wonder why God is always calling us forward? He is saying, have you not seen? I have defeated your greatest enemy. I have overcome your greatest threat. To live is Christ and to die is gain now. That the one who's overcome, this is his promise. He says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always when the world tries to overcome you. I am with you always when the world tries to def defeat you. I am with you always when you are discouraged. I am with you always when your friend betrays you. I am with you always when your boss uh, over tries to overbear you. I am with you always. So now, so now, you, when the soldier comes and he says, "Can I carry? will you carry my armor for one mile? Even though he is an enemy combatant, you go ahead and say, I'll carry it two miles. When someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn to them the other cheek because I am with you. And if they are going to overcome Overcome you, they've got to overcome me first, and I am greater than he who is in the world. So stand firm, stand firm, and go forward. See the salvation of the Lord. Jesus abides with us, and he is standing before us, defending us. And that brings us to the climax of the text, right? To this climactic, the zenith of their redemption in the, whole, in the Old Testament. Where, where we constantly see the people of God looking back for to see where their ransom was paid. And the God of their fathers had redeemed them. And we see that God ultimately saves his people. God saves his people. That God commands Moses to raise his staff. And when Moses raises his staff as though it were a, a road, God carves a path into the midst of the sea. 
the, the commentators I've read suggest that it had to have been at least a half a mile wide and it's parted all the way through the night, so much so that it would have been like a city wall on your right and a city wall on your left. And this wasn't like the clay that we're used to where you walk through marshy ground and you start getting stilts and you get taller and taller and taller as it mars up on the bottoms of your feet. No, it says this is dry ground. They're able to move swiftly, effectively, safely, quickly. And the people of God with all of their plunder and all of their rich and all of their livestock and all of their children and all of their warriors, they begin to cross over what appeared before to be an insurmountable obstacle has an interstate right in the middle of it. They cross over to the other side, and as they cross over to the other side, the Egyptians are emboldened, and they believe that with their superior training and their superior technology, that they can go after Israel and go exactly where Israel was going. Now, why not? And so they take off after them, and as they take off after them, the Lord begins to soften the soil. He throws them into a confusion, and their, their wills begin to mar up and slow down, and they realize that they have went into their own trap, went into their own judgment. The Lord, they say, the Lord is fighting for Israel. We have to retreat. We have to turn back. The Lord, the Lord is the defender of his people. The Lord is the savior of his people. The Lord is the, the one who will come down on their enemies. And they try to turn around, but God commands Moses to lower the staff. And when he lowers the staff, God pours out his wrath upon the Egyptians with a finality that would have been devastating, boring, bordering on annihilation. And on the bank of the Red Sea, there is Israel. Israel singing praises to their God, singing praises for their salvation, praises for the abundance of his steadfast love. And while they have their hands risen in praise, the Egyptians are washing ashore to the same judgment. That is, the instrument of judgment becomes the means of deliverance for God's people. The instrument of judgment becomes the means of deliverance for God's people. You see, when the flood came and the waters rose and the earth was judged, like the Egyptians, all the generation of Noah faced the judgment of God beneath the sea. But there was a remnant. There was one who had the favor of God, one who had the grace of God, who had, who had received the instruction, received the warning, and had heeded it, had built the ark. And there on his family, his family on the ark, experienced the same thing, the same flood, the same waters, the same sea, but they had a different experience. And when the waters abated, the carcasses of the generation surrounded them, just like the Egyptians on the shore that day. And in the midst of this devastation, Noah builds an altar and worships the Lord and, and thanks him for his provision and his kindness and his mercy. And you know, that, that is the cross. Upon the cross, God's son stood between us and our enemy by drowning beneath the outpouring of the very wrath of God, the judgment of God. The Red Sea, in fact, the whole earth did not have the capacity to contain the full volume of God's wrath owed to me, a, a minuscule sinner who had brought infinite offense against an infinite God. But there was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was able to drink it, and he drank it all the way to the dregs, every last drop of the wrath of God. And so, so with our baptism, with our baptism, this is the connection that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 10, we are 
baptized into the waters of judgment. We are baptized beneath the waters of God's wrath because we are identifying with the judgment and the wrath that has been poured upon Christ. And just as the waters in the flood in Genesis 6, just as the waters against Egypt here in Exodus 14 purified the earth, we come out of those waters now made pure, not living for ourselves, but a new life, a resurrected life, having identified in the judgment of Christ, now having walked and received the victory of Christ to live forevermore. You see, our baptism buries us into the waters of judgment and raises us into new life. The instrument of judgment, the instrument of judgment, the sea has become the means of our deliverance. The instrument of judgment, the cross, has become the means of our deliverance. And so, so we look forward to what Revelation 21 says. Do you know what Revelation 21 says? I don't know that I ever really paid attention to this before. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And listen to this, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. In the new heaven and in the new earth, there is no flood, there is no sea, there is no judgment, there is no baptism, there is no purification. It has been saved. It has been renewed. It has been recreated. And you, you have been baptized and redeemed. You have been set free. And now, now only the enjoyment of the freedom of the promised land awaits you. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.